This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Another month, another special legislative session as DFL Governor Tim Walz once again extends his emergency authority to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. That extension triggers the special session to give lawmakers a chance to end the emergency. The Republican-controlled Senate will no doubt vote to end it, while the DFL-led House will not. And so the state of emergency and the governor's emergency powers will continue. So after six months, where is Minnesota in the response to the pandemic? And what will the next few months bring? Joining me this hour to address those and other questions is Governor Tim Walls. Governor Walls, thanks so much for coming on. Well, thank you, Mike, and good morning to you. Back in uh, March and April, you uh, declared this peacetime emergency. Uh, You used your powers to restrict public gatherings, uh, schools. The goal then was to give the state time to build reserves and protective equipment, hospital space, uh, ICU intensive care capacity. What's the goal of the emergency action now? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. When uh, when COVID started uh, emerging, and I think in early January, many of us were, were first hearing it for the first time we were starting to look, um, what we knew about it was relatively limited. What we did know about it was is that it was swift moving. Um, we didn't know sure exactly the way transmission happened, but it was high. What we did know and we witnessed in, in Italy, um, in China, and, and then, of course, in New York City was is how quickly you could overwhelm your, your health care system. So um, we took those precautions to make sure that um, if folks did get COVID, um, that they would be cared for. But as this started to evolve, what we understood was it was striking more people and that the goal both here, states across the country, and then internationally, was to slow the spread by using what we were learning about COVID, by washing hands, social distancing, wearing masks, limiting indoor uh, interactions. And our goal remains the same, to protect the health and welfare of Minnesotans, to use the best health data that we have um, to strike a proper balance, to make sure that uh, economic activities that can be done safely, education of our children can be done safely, we want to make sure we're able to do that. And uh, that goal remains the same. Um, Minnesota has uh, is a bit of an island right now. The states around us have what Dr. Burks called uncontrolled spread. Um, we are not at that point, and that's because Minnesotans have, for the most part, done what they needed to do to slow it. So how how will you decide when it's time to end the emergency? What what metrics will you use? Will it be a vaccine? Will it be new cases per capita falling below X? How do you measure yeah. that? Very early on, we, we set dial-back measures based on CDC, working with Mayo Clinic, working with some of the, the leading institutes around health, um, to try and put out some metrics. One of the things we, we measure is positivity rate. Um, when we do a set of tests, if we test 10 people and, uh, and two of them have that, obviously you have a 20% positivity rate. Um, what it's showing is, is caution. If you get above 5%, it starts to be worried because this thing exponentially grows. You get above 10% and it becomes uncontrollable. Um, Minnesota has hovered around 5% um, for the better part of the last two months. Um, but just as an example today is, we tested nearly 18,000 people and we had 2.7% positivity rate. Now that is one data point in time. The next thing is how many tests we're able to administer. We have to be able to administer as a minimum uh, 100 tests per 10,000. We're hovering closer to 200 on that, so we're pretty solid there. New cases uh, per 100,000, we're at about 12.4. Iowa, uh, you know, in in South Dakota, you ended up with uh, closer to 200. 
Um, community spread, and this is the real tricky one. If you get above 20%, it starts to become a real problem. That means people getting up from they don't know where. They were at a wedding, as your story said, or they were at a bar, or something happened that it makes it hard to trace exactly where it came from. We're at 34% there, and that's somewhat troubling. And then, of course, hospitalizations. You get above four, you start to kind of uh, look at it with caution. We're at about 5.5. So those are measures that we used. And based on all the best health data, if, if we could get those below those numbers where they're at, transmission of this slows dramatically. And then you just take basic steps of um, washing your hands, wearing the mask where you're around people, and you should be able to carry on a lot of these activities. But again, those who claim that you just open up and then everything will work out, that is the surest way to close down businesses. It's the surest way that spread will go. So we have these in place. We follow those metrics. We've kept them relatively stable in Minnesota, and that has ensured that we've not overwhelmed the healthcare system and our businesses have stayed open. Well, as you well know, Republicans in the legislature say there's no need to extend your emergency powers and that uh, Minnesotans should be trusted to decide for themselves what steps to take to prevent the spread of the virus. How do you respond to that? Oh, we lost the governor. We'll try to reconnect with the governor. I don't think my question was that tough. And the governor's back. Mike, governor, I apologize. Oh, no problem. I was wondering if you didn't like my question, but let me ask it again. I like your question. Now, I'm, <laughs> I was on a landline, which I don't believe I've used in years, and uh, it is touchy. But no, uh, certainly I think Minnesotans can be trusted. But it, it's more than that, and we've seen this with the mask, of people saying, you know, I feel like it's my right not to do this, which is one thing, and we certainly protect our individual freedoms in this country and, and stand by them, but that has a major impact. Your story on the wedding is a great example of that, and I want to be clear. Not being able to hold a wedding is horrific for people. These are life events that really matter. We're not doing this because we don't want to see people enjoy life. We're doing it because we know that if you don't put these measures in place, this will happen. And and for those saying we don't need to do this, um, Every other state has these in place. The president has this in place. The CDC and Dr. Burks actually encouraged us to put more on. And states that lifted these requirements too early ended up closing down and ended up having more cases. So, I, I again, I don't find any joy in us doing this. The Constitution of Minnesota was very clear that to move quickly. So just to be clear, what ending the emergency powers does and let's just say so it takes off restrictions. There's no masks. There's no limits on this. And everybody can go right back out and go to the bars and do whatever they want to do. Um, there is absolutely no proof that, that that is going to happen, that they will go. It would also end our testing program. It would end my ability to use the National Guard in support of this. It would end my ability to do fast uh, personal protective equipment uh, procurement. And everything I do as far as expenditures has to be approved by the legislature as it sounds. So um, I just feel like this is much more of about a messaging piece of this. Um, folks that, just to be candid, they do not believe COVID is serious. They do not believe that these things are saving lives. Uh, that runs counter to almost unanimous uh, universal support by healthcare industries that say these are the things we should be doing. So I have to tell you, if the Mayo Clinic were telling me that this is over and we should do this, and that was confirmed by many others, that's what we would do. But that's not happening. Well, you brought up the Constitution, and as you know, the Senate has the constitutional power to uh, 
consent to your appointments. Um, if they don't confirm a commissioner, that person is out of a job. They did that last month. Do you expect the Republican majority in the Senate to keep firing your people until you end this emergency? Yeah, I would certainly hope not, Mike. This is a pretty sad chapter in Minnesota's history, and we prided ourselves. I think all of us did uh, last year of being the only divided legislature in the country. We worked together. I'm the first governor in 40 years, never issued a veto. Things that the legislature moved that I maybe didn't agree with 100 percent, I still supported to try and get it done. And so I, I think what the public needs to know on this is, is these are the people that are out there keeping us safe. When Nancy Lepping was removed, Nancy Lepping, her job over at Department of Labor and Industry was to get the meatpacking plants back up and running and keep the workers safe. It's one thing to say, oh, you know, we should just go right back in and keep processing meat. The workers were not going back into there until they felt safe. It was our commissioners who were doing that. And they have made it clear that they're frustrated with me because I am using constitutional powers that have been upheld by the courts 40 to zero in in court cases. Um, And so I have legislators suing me. I have legislators gathering at places without masks. And I have legislators that aren't lifting a hand to fight COVID. I don't want to fight the Republicans. I want to fight COVID-19. I want us to work together. And these commissioners um, are more than just pawns to be used, um, you know, in a political fight. They are the people that are actually implementing these proposals to get the testing out there, to keep people safe, um, to work with the data, to buy the masks, and and to to have every time they come down um, to have to stand and, and, and watch these good public servants, you know, try to be embarrassed publicly for just purely political reasons. So I I hope it doesn't happen because I know Minnesotans just want us to get through this thing, get over it and move on. Uh, Let me ask you one more before we uh, hear from some callers. But uh, one of the commissioners who might be a target of the Senate Republicans is Steve Kelly. He's the Commerce Commissioner. The Commerce Department said last month it'll appeal the Public Utilities Commission approval of the Line 3 Enbridge Replacement Pipeline. What's your position on that pipeline? Do you support or oppose the uh, replacement? I have said, and it it is, no governor should have the power to approve or disapprove public utilities or other projects. There is a process in place, there are laws in place, and there's the science behind it. And each of the agencies, whether it be the DNR, the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency, or the Commerce Commission, follows along to make sure that the laws that were put in place to both protect the public environmentally and to allow industry to construct a project if it's done right. And I've said, if this project can meet those standards, it should be built. And this was a process that was put in place in December of 18 before my administration came on board. It's asking the courts to look at, and anybody who spent time looking at this, the certificate of need that's in question here is very ambiguous. It actually applies really to power plants, not to pipeline. And so the Commerce Commission is asking to ensure the public has faith in what we've done to ask the courts to take a look at this and say, is the certificate of need warranted in this pipeline? Um, And so what I'm saying, and and I guess if that's the complaint, and I want to be very clear, I think if you went out and searched and I would ask the Republican senators, who in the industry is saying Steve Kelly is not doing his job? There's no one. No one in the healthcare industry that he oversees. No one in industry or in insurance industry is saying that. Now, I get it. 
I get this. Republicans do not want someone in that position who believes in climate change or believes that science should be a part of this decision. I get that. But I don't believe it was ever the Constitution's uh, authors and the people of Minnesota to believe that a governor does not have the right to put someone in there who ideologically believes in them. The question should be, is he doing his job? And unequivocally, the question across everyone who knows this is, absolutely. There is no fundamental reason to remove him other than we're mad at the governor for fighting COVID-19 and we don't want the process to be followed on line three. That that doesn't make sense to me. But just to be clear, you're not going to take a stand on line three until all the, the process is, is done. My stand to be on this was is that to usher these through, to make sure that it's done correctly, if this pipeline meets the requirements the state of Minnesota has and can be built safely, I will ensure that that's what happens. If it doesn't, we will make sure that those are followed, too. So at this point in time, um, the idea that people would think a governor should either raise his hand and say, stop this pipeline, because if you say that, you're going to assume that the next governor could say, build this pipeline without any oversight, without any environmental reviews. Um, So I think we're taking the position of being stewards of what the the public has asked of us what the law states and carrying that out. I'm not going to short go around the system, um, and we are not adding uh, unnecessary things to it. The appeal on line three was instituted by the previous administration, and it should be seen through to an end. Governor Tim Walls is our guest this hour, and we're asking him about COVID and other issues. Uh, Sarah is on the line from Rockford with a question. Hi, Sarah, go ahead. Um, Thank you for taking my call. I have heard that Trump is going to hold a rally in Minnesota next week, and based on other past rallies in other states, there will be very few masks and um, no social distancing. How can he be allowed to do that in Minnesota when wearing masks is a mandate? Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you, Sarah, for this question. And uh, and you're absolutely right. I believe that Vice President Biden and President Trump will both be here next Friday, which they should be. It's, that's fine. Um, we are asking the administration, we'll continue to ask to follow the rules that every Minnesotan is following. Um, these are not arbitrary. They're actually the rules that are put out by the Center for Disease Control that the president oversees. Uh, states have the authority to put these in, and, and we're going to ask people to follow them, not because we're trying to limit their personal freedoms, but because we're trying to protect our neighbors and make sure that we don't spread COVID-19. So we will um, we will do all we can. And I've said this before, Sarah, that um, this is about caring for our neighbors. This is about following science and process. I understand very clearly if I put a mask mandate out, we don't have enough people to enforce that everywhere. But just like so many things, We don't have enough state patrol to enforce speeding everywhere, but most people follow the law because they don't want to kill their neighbors. And um, our hope would be that people who attend this rally, and I encourage them to do so. If you're a supporter of the president, attend if that works. But just follow the rules that we have, and there's ample opportunities in outdoor spaces to socially distance, wear a mask, and do this right. Uh, Governor, I know we're talking policy, but you're a politician, too. President Trump has said he thinks he can win Minnesota this year. What do you think? Well, I certainly have uh, never, ever taken any election for granted. Um, I think the president is is probably not wrong that given a set of circumstances, it was proven to be uh, pretty close in 2016. I think uh, my take is is that the public is very engaged. I think we've had three and a half years um, 
to watch what the president told us was going to happen. And I think most people will make the decision if, if they like the direction the country is going, if they like what the president is telling them, um, they will certainly be there. I think probably, though, the idea of being unified, I, I ran on this idea of, um, of one Minnesota, and I still believe in that. doesn't mean we all agree, but it means that we respect our differences and we're stronger together. Um, that message resonated well with Minnesotans, and, and I would guess I haven't really heard the president deliver a unifying message, so I think that's going to make it pretty hard for him to, to win Minnesota. Let's take another caller, Catherine on the line from Minneapolis. Hi, Catherine. Hi. Um, hello? Yes, you're on. Go ahead. Oh, thank you. Um, I just wanted to thank the governor for his amazing leadership on this um, virus uh, crisis and I just keep thinking we're so lucky to be in Minnesota and not some of the other states that are having more problems. And my question is on the state budget as relates to the virus. So we've seen um, so many businesses uh, reduce hours or even close down altogether permanently, and uh, people are, you know, out of work. And so, you know, the money flowing into the state coffers is considerably reduced. Um, And my question, because I am retired on fixed income, is what are we looking at in terms of massive state deficits, you know, in years to come with all the extra spending we have to do for this? And um, are are we taxpayers going to be looking at increased um, personal state taxes because of this? And I just would like his information on how this affects our budget and taxes. Thanks, and I'll listen on the air. Great question. Thank you. Governor? Yeah, it is a great question, Catherine. Thank you. And thank you for the kind words. Yes, I I actually went and spent three and a half hours in front of uh, all, albeit virtually, in front of the House Financial Services Committee yesterday. They had a hearing on this very issue, and there were four governors on there, myself and three others, and an economist um, to talk about this issue. Minnesota is facing um, revenue shortfalls over the projected next four years of about $8.1 billion. Uh, the good news was, as Minnesota went in um, as a top three state in terms of a percentage of our rainy day funds, smart decisions were made. And I want to be clear, bipartisan Democrat and Republicans working together to balance the budget. Um, as far as deficits into the future, we are constitutionally mandated. We cannot deficit spend. So it means that we need to balance our budget. Um, and the challenge will come in is the bulk of Minnesota's budget, about 80 percent, is around health care and education. And those are the very things that we're going to need to be focused on. The increased expenditures, um, the federal government gave us about $2 billion in the CARES Act to help address the issue, to buy PPE, to do testing. That money runs out and is, is the deadline is December 31st. I was on with members of Congress yesterday and saying that would be great if the virus would just listen to us and quit on December 31st. It will not quit. Um, and, and so, as Mike said earlier, we have some turnback measures. We also know that we're getting better with therapeutics. We know that there'll be a vaccine, so that will change some of it. Our goal in Minnesota has been to open businesses as quickly and as safely as we can, work to keep them open. And we saw this month that um, revenue projections were up about 15.1%, which means Minnesota businesses are starting to open up. They are starting to function. Revenues are coming in. But I think what Catherine's asking, Democrats and Republicans are going to have to get together, craft a budget that serves Minnesotan, protects the most vulnerable, balances that budget. And as I've said, we have to look at every single possibility to do this, and we have to look at where the, the national economy is. Um, 
taxing people who are out of work doesn't raise any money. Um, and shortchanging our schools doesn't prepare a workforce to grow the economy to create the type of life we want. So these are tough decisions. I, I just have to say, I really wish that the legislature today, instead of working to punish me by taking out a public servant, were talking about this very subject and working together to come up with a balanced budget. When do you really have to start making some tough decisions? You'll have a new legislature well, we next year, but yeah, we are. No, that's right. We we already have. I'm I'm required as an administration constitutionally to start asking my agencies to start looking at ways that they can save. Um, that's a very difficult thing to do, especially now. It, it's kind of contracyclical in in economic downturn. State services go up. Um, we have already had to make some really tough decisions. I asked in January for a deficiency increase to the Department of Corrections to keep our facilities open, and um, those were denied, and we had to make some hard decisions on the Willow River and uh, in the Togo facility. Um, so we're already planning for this. I'm already asking us to put scenarios in front of us, and those scenarios w- would range from what happens if we don't spend in this area and we increase spending here, what happens on tax revenues here, and all of those things are happening right now, I am obligated to, by about January 20th, um, provide a balanced budget um, proposal to the people of Minnesota and the legislature, which which we are working on as we speak. Hmm. And you mentioned your uh, testimony uh, yesterday uh, before a U.S. House committee. If uh, the politics look uh, rough here, they're really messed up in Washington. Uh, what do you think the odds are that there's going to be any kind of agreement to send more money to the states? Yeah, well, I will tell you, Mike, after nearly four hours on with them yesterday, my decision to leave Congress was the right one. Um, I was pretty <laughs> frustrated myself. I think the governors were frustrated. As a governor, you don't really have the luxury of just talking about it, you have to deliver. Um, I think the prospects are now zero, unfortunately. And I I think those of you who know me, I'm the eternal optimist from my lunchroom days. Um, it's just, they're just not there. And, um, and and there were members of Congress that that from other states that told me and said, Governor, you're fine, you don't need these resources. And my question was, is that, how would you know that? Um, have you seen this where it's at? And, and the interesting thing about this was is, is all 50 governors in the National Governors Association signed on to a letter asking for more resources? Because only the federal government, and again, I'm, I, when I was in Congress, I was part of the Committee for Responsible Federal Budgeting. I know it sounds like an oxymoron, but it was about deficits do matter. But at a time of crisis, much like World War II, we had to deficit spend. Um, then after the war, the economy grew and it shrunk. Right now, we need the federal government to help us with some of this, because contrary to what Senator McConnell said was is if, if states go bankrupt, that is going to have an incredibly detrimental effect, both on personal well-being, but on business well-being. So I think the chances now until after the election are probably uh, gone. Uh, you mentioned your uh, desire to uh, reopen businesses. Um, Cold weather is coming. A lot of restaurants have been having the uh, patio service. Is there any uh, thought to increase the uh, amount of indoor dining that's allowed with the cold weather coming on? Yeah, I just and I think I want to make sure I name it that 
there have been no industry hit harder during this than than the hospitality industry, restaurants, bars, uh, large venue events, musical venues. Uh, they have paid a heavy price in this, and and one of the problems is is it's just so dependent on volume. Um, they're exactly the type of environments that that show the spread of COVID. And and yesterday, I think you probably saw there was a story out showing. Um, your chances of getting COVID increase greatly if you've been dining out. And and that is truly unfortunate. I think here, one of the things that we've worked really hard at is, is even against, and I, I mean, this is when I talk to the Republican senators, I'm telling them this, Dr. Burke, a lead advisor to the president's coronavirus task force, made the suggestion that we turn back the dial and close more restaurants and bars. We in Minnesota think we're able to manage this with some smart policies on um, capacity limits, masking, and some of those other things. And if they're adhered to, we think we can keep it open. But as I said, if we turn the corner on this, if we start to see test, you know, case positivity rates drop, if we see community spread get to where we're able to contract, contact trace and isolate quicker, those are when we can turn the dials open more. And again, I think the idea that the Republican Senate making that this is some type of arbitrary decision rather than a decision based on the way the virus is pushing us, that's what's wrong. And again, Minnesota is not on an island. In terms of sheer volume of of businesses open and opportunities, Minnesota ranks near the top of those that are open rather than near the bottom. And so I, I think we just watch what the virus does. We continue to ask people to do this. I think, and again, it's it's too early to tell, but we're over the last 10 days, we're starting to see, I think, a leveling in the test positivity rate that I think is reflective of people wanting schools to open and really buckling down to say, you know, let's get this right so our kids can get in school. And again, I don't I don't want to get out there ahead of it, um, but I think it's it's worth noting that it appears like there's glimmers and data points that show that, that something is happening that that we're doing better. And especially when you look to the states surrounding us, um, much different um, positivity rates, much different infection rates. We're talking with Governor Tim Walls this hour about uh, the COVID pandemic and other things. I'll get to more calls in just a minute, but I also asked uh, listeners to send in some questions. And here's one. Do you question anything you've done during the pandemic? And would you do anything differently knowing what you know now? Yeah, I, I question every day, just so the folks know this. And and I wonder if um, if holding the stay-at-home order maybe slightly longer uh, maybe would have made a difference. Um, I certainly still wish that I had been able to be more persuasive to get more bipartisan support in um, in doing things, especially around. I I I think it could be concerned that. Should we have moved faster on a mask mandate? Perhaps. But it was my belief that I thought if I could get Republican legislators to be the ones suggesting that, that you would take some of the, the politics out of it. Um, and I'm trying my best to continue to try and work with businesses and community members to uh, to make sure that they're informed and heard. And I, I think the one thing is, is that it's hard to say you would have done things differently you know, go, looking back now, we know so much more about this. We know so much more that was, you know, what the spread was. Um, could we have opened outdoor venues maybe a little sooner? I think the answer is yes. Um, now what we know about that. And and I think, but I, I couldn't make that decision at the time based on the data that we had, but I do think you need to learn from it. And I think that learning curve has been one of the reasons why we've been 
relatively stable in positivity rate and spread and still kept businesses open. And we didn't have this start and stop like you saw in, in, in states like Georgia or Florida or, you know, Texas. Um, so, I, yeah, I think there's things that we would have. Um, I, I just really wish we could have stayed in a more bipartisan place. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, I will I will take ownership for it. It's, it's a two-way street. I think, um, you know, there's some obstinance and I think there's pushback. But that then requires me to try and find another way to come at it. And I'm, I'm still trying to do that, asking what can I do to ensure you. I mean, the, the idea of just totally removing our testing, totally removing National Guard, I mean, that doesn't make sense. But But I get it the frustration legislators are feeling because COVID's forcing that on us. What about spending that $6.9 million on the cold storage facility to use as a temporary morgue? In retrospect, good decision or bad decision? I would have made it in the moment again every time. What I was seeing in New York and and the the information that was coming in, the idea of the the lack of dignity to, to stack our neighbors in a truck that we rented um, rather than treating them with the respect and all of the modeling and all the indicators. And I think people go back to this modeling issue. I'm glad. I am glad that the models proved to not go out where they were. Um, many of those things, those models did not prove to be correct because we made the changes. If you recall, we said, if we do nothing, this is what's going to happen. At that point in time, when I had to make that decision, um, that was the right decision. Um, here's what I'm hoping. And I will tell people this. I am hoping that that building never sees someone in it. And if they want to complain to me about that, that is a far better situation than having people stacked in U-Hauls. I can guarantee you that. Let's go back to the telephones. Wayne is on the line in Proctor. Hi, Wayne. Uh, Good morning. Morning. Uh, Good morning. Uh, Again, thank you, Governor Walsh, for being an elected official. That's a tough job. Uh, But uh, I I used to be a job coach. Uh, I worked with disabled folks uh, on their jobs. When the pandemic hit, it shut down, we got laid off, um, and I know a lot of the agencies across the state are really hurting because they don't have any clients, or very few clients. Um, so I guess I'm wondering, and our clients really like to work. They like to earn money, they like to pay their taxes, they want to be part of society. Um, so I guess, what uh, is the state doing to help get these folks back back to work? Yeah. Well, first of all, Wayne, thank you. And, and thanks for your work. And, and, and I, too, um, Mankato had a, a lot of folks that I work with and a lot of my students that I had uh, productive lives, uh, not uh, not isolated from everyone, but the opportunity to to get an education with all of their peers and then to get jobs that really mattered. And this is one has been the hardest because in many cases we have a vulnerable population. And when this economy hit, it fell quickly onto them. I think um, one of the things, and I think this is a, a bipartisan thank you to the legislature, um, folks like Jim Abler and, and uh, Senator Hoffman worked on, on our, our day treatment, ways that we could get folks in, understanding that, and I understand this clearly too, the isolation that we asked around COVID had peripheral negative impacts, whether it be social isolation, mental health issues, or people putting off simple uh, health visits. Now, I want to be clear, we never forbid people from getting the care that they needed. What we asked was is to elective surgeries and those types of things to put off. But people made the choice on their own to feel 
not safe to go back into those places. And so I think Wayne's point is right. We've still got a lot of people in vulnerable positions. We've got a lot of people and things that Minnesotans work really, really hard and were nationally recognized for, especially for um, the care of our folks that that had some things to overcome. Um, They paid a pretty heavy price in this. So I think looking at at DHS, looking at some of our agencies about ways they're trying to to make those changes, and then looking to the legislature for um, stepping up advocating. And we allocated about $30 million of COVID money to work on those services. And I think those are the types of things when I was in front of Congress yesterday, that's the kind of help that if Congress helps us with, we will put to good use. But um, I appreciate your, your concern and compassion, Wayne, for a group of folks that sometimes voices don't get heard. Let's take another caller, Chuck, on the line from uh, Minneapolis. Hi, Governor. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, this doesn't have to do with uh, any current crisis, but it's a continuing issue. I'm going to take you back to April of 2019 and the trial of Mohammed Noor for the killing of Justine Ruschek Damon in Minneapolis. Uh, There were all sorts of questions raised about the initial investigation of the BCA, the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, in that case. Some of those questions were even publicly raised by the Hennepin County Attorney, Mike Freeman. You were quoted by MPR on uh, May 1st of 2019. I need to understand what happened here and what brought up those accusations and to understand whether we can validate them and if we do, what are the processes to move to alleviate that? He said his office is collecting information and that he'd asked for a report as accusations of poor work by the BCA surfaced. On January 3rd of this year, I called your office and I asked, did you ever get such a report? If you did, is it public? If it's public, where is it accessible? And uh, I was referred to the BCA, then the DPS. I was given the runaround, basically. Finally, I made a data practices request of your office. Your office has no report that you ordered on, you actually ordered it on April 30th of 2019. Whatever happened with that? Yeah, well, thank you, Chuck. And and you are not wrong, Chuck. Um, and this is one of those things uh, where I ask for my folks to report to me. Um, anything that we do in this office, you're absolutely right, should be. And, and I am under obligation for data practices to get out there. Uh, what I can tell you is, is that we spent a lot of time, as you know, this year, BCA and BCA uh, accountability or BCA oversight came up in the legislature as part of the police reform. Um, because for listeners out there, what, what Chuck is getting at is when there is an officer-involved shooting uh, in Minnesota, the BCA is the investigative authority over that. And just to be candid, there are large numbers of families, many of whom I've gotten to know, that do not trust the BCA's work. And it was my intention, and is still in my intention, to make sure that we're making changes over there and in transparency so that they can believe them. Um, and so, Chuck, what I would what I would say to you is, um, we did not publish a official report on this. Uh, it wasn't because we, we didn't want that information to get out there. It's the data points that we were asking for because the cases in some case in, are simply where they were. They went to court, they came out, they were adjudicated, that's where it's at, and the evidence was there. Um, what I can do is, is that, again, and I think this is why these are good opportunities to ask and they're good opportunities to be publicly on the record, um, 
to try and put out what BCA can put out about what they've done, what processes have been changed, and can we make sure that the public feels like they're seeing that information. But you are not wrong, Chuck. Nothing was officially uh, published on that. There have been reports, and I have stayed actively engaged with them and asked during this last legislative session as we were doing police reforms that the BCA be part of that conversation. Uh, This brings up the whole issue around uh, the police killing of George Floyd. Uh, That happened on Memorial Day. Now we've passed Labor Day. Do you think uh, what has happened since then generally has been a positive impact for the state or a negative impact for the state of Minnesota? Well, certainly the the destruction of property and the the civil uh, unrest, not positive. Um, the conversation, um, the folks on the street expressing their, their First Amendment rights, and in many cases the, their anger at a system that, that does not serve them well or people of color well, that, that was a positive. Um, I just want to be very clear that I, I think a lot of people want the riots to go away. They maybe want the question to go away. Um, I think there's a lot of, and I certainly do not ever speak for communities of color. I just relay whereas they speak to me. Um, they feel that we made incremental small changes in a good direction, but there's so much more yet to be done. And, and I worry, I just have to tell you, Mike, and to your listeners on there, I am concerned every time the attorney general and the defendants go into court like they are today about what can come out of that, because I think the tensions and the underlying, uh, systemic issues are still there. Um, I think certainly in Minneapolis, the uh, the frayed trust between the police and those that they protect um, is still there. And we have a long ways to go. And as I said in those days following George Floyd's killing, um, I don't think we're going to get a whole lot of chances at this. And, and I think it's human nature to maybe want to get beyond some of these difficult times, but they are not gone. And it, it, folks think this conversation is is done it is it is far from done there's there's much more that needs to happen does that mean you're going to have the national guard standing by ready to deploy again waiting on a verdict or a developments in the court case well we certainly learned much um and i want to say that you know it it is not the state's responsibility to be in in local jurisdictions on a day-to-day basis but we are certainly there to support them um in, in maintaining uh, calm in communities. Uh, I think what you saw here a couple of weeks ago with the, uh, the killing and the suicide and the false information that got out that, that sparked a brief uh, civil unrest downtown, that the response was swift. And uh, I, I think what you can expect is, and the expectation is, is that we would be prepared to assist. And I would say that whether it's Minneapolis or Mankato or Moorhead, um, the state's job is to to support local entities, and I would be—I think it would be uh, a dereliction of duty not to assume that the anger that's in the community um, is still prevalent. And when these things erupt, those that wish to create chaos amongst those peaceful protests will be there, and we need to respond accordingly. Any regrets about how quickly or how slowly the Guard was deployed initially back in uh, late May? No, and I think as your listeners know, I have quite a bit of experience with this, having 24 years. I understand what Guard capabilities are. Um, 
We are not police. Now, there are military police, but we are not police, nor do we have the authority to make arrests. Um, we're there to support. Um, State Patrol certainly um, is our you know, first-line backup on that. I think the, the mayor of Minneapolis uh, requested guard support as quickly and as prudently as he thought possible, and I think we deployed them in the most efficient way possible. And um, when you're moving, the type of people we moved and asking people to leave their civilian jobs and enter at night into an area that was seeing civil unrest unseen since the Watts riots of 68, um, to not have an injury amongst a National Guard, State Patrol, or uh, uh, another DAP was, was the best we could hope for. Now, with that being said, are there lessons learned? Yes. Um, when you prepared to stop this type of rioting at the RNC, when it was in St. Paul or the Super Bowl, 18 months of interagency collaboration and rehearsals went on. Um, all of that happened within a span of 72 hours. And um, so I think now one of the things we've learned on this is we need to do these rehearsals um, and we need to make sure that cities understand what the state's capability is and vice versa and um, and exercise those in times of calm so that if we ever need them, we can use them. Well, let me ask you about another issue that's come out as this uh, as part of the fallout of all this, and that is the video of the uh, DFL candidate for state house, John Thompson, uh, making inflammatory comments in Hugo at the home of uh, the Minneapolis um, police uh, union leader. Um, do, do you endorse Thompson's candidacy? Should the state DFL withdraw its endorsement? Well, first of all, there is no place for, for that type of rhetoric. And, and again, I, I, I will not play the both sides do it type of thing. This is this and this specific incident. Um, that was certainly is uncalled for, is unnecessary, I, I think, and would hope that Mr. Thompson um, expressed remorse in this, continues to, and, and helps to move away from that, that type of rhetoric. We see it. It has now apparently become the norm in our politics. Um, and I think the decisions around endorsement and, and redemption and, and conversations are, are important. Um, the idea that it, it's gotcha, it can't be there. It's simply wrong. You can't talk this way. You can't do that. You certainly can't do it at a home. I don't think it's any secret that, that I've had my differences with, with Officer Kroll, but the idea that his family would be subjected to that is totally uncalled for. And, and again, I make the case that protests that to get out and speak your mind, those are protected. We'll do everything we can to do it. Going to someone's home to do it, um, that's just not something that, that is productive. I think it's it's unhelpful, and um, we just it has to stop. Should the DFL withdraw its endorsement? Well, that's a decision they will make. Not having been endorsed by the DFL in my run, I, I don't really know how to speak about that. I did not have the DFL endorsement, but um, I, I, I certainly think, and again, I'm, I don't want you, and I want, don't want your listeners um, this is wrong, and this is the case you're talking about. Um, but I do have to remind them that the Republican Party chair called me Kim Jong-un, and their candidates said I was acting like Adolf Hitler. Um, again, this isn't about woe is me type of thing or whatever. Um, the parties will decide where they're at. I think it is incumbent when these situations come up that we don't just say our side doesn't do it and your side does it's evident that it's in our politics, um, and there's passions, don't get me wrong, there's passions that fuel why they say those things, but um, the parties will decide on, on how they do their endorsements. 
And what about you? Do you endorse him? I did earlier on. I uh, and uh, our, our team will 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 talk about this. And I think there is something to be said about uh, you know uh, apologies, redemptions, what you can do. Um, but it's not a decision that we've made uh, at this time. Let's go back to the phones. Jude is on the line from Brooklyn Center. Hi, my governor. How are you? This is Jude. How are you doing? Hi, Jude. Nice to talk to you. <laughs> nice to talk to you. Yeah, so um, my question as a small business owner and somebody who is very active in the community, I know we work with the um, Lieutenant Governor um, um, Peggy uh, to advance uh, $20 million to micro-businesses, those who don't have um, much revenue, those working from home, and those uh, who don't have employees. And that, that was pretty uh, awesome for these uh, community business owners. However, from my own uh, uh, observation, we were able to make like 10%, maybe one out of every 10 that needed that. Is there any possibility to have another stimulus um, for those micro-business owners? And if there is, is there anything you want us to do from community point of view to support you? Because I know you run into a stronger position from uh, uh, Senate uh, Republicans. So, well, thank you, Jude. And, and Jude is referring to, and, and again, when I was speaking to the United States Congress, I, I wanted to be clear that the CARES Act funding, and, and there have been critiques about it that, that a lot of that money ended up in larger corporations, um, that that may be true. There was also a lot that did come to the state. And, and state, and again, I want to say in a bipartisan manner, the legislature and um, our Department of uh, Employment and Economic Development crafted different programs to help businesses. And the one Jude's talking about are micro-business loans that can be very small, from $2,500. Uh, many of them are forgivable over time. And they especially um, were needed in those those really small businesses, mostly, in many cases, minority-owned or women-owned. And the loans did make a difference. They helped with payroll. They helped with keeping the doors open. They helped them until we were able to uh, re- move back out of the stay-at-home order. Uh, I think those are, again, the, exactly the type of things that the legislature should be working on. We certainly support them in them in that move. Uh, our COVID relief funds, we are, uh, they are winding down. As we said, they need to be uh, allocated and spent by the 31st of December. Um, but I think from the state of Minnesota's perspective, the return on the dollar that we get in supporting and keeping the doors open on small businesses in terms of uh, the economic activity, the the generation of, of tax revenue to the state, um, and the strength in our communities is well worth it. So Jude is right. I think we had about 10 times more people apply than we were able to issue them to. I think a second round of these is, is certainly something that we support, and I would encourage the legislature to pursue. Uh, as I say, I we put out a call online for some questions from listeners, and we got one from Lena who asked, what is your administration doing to help black families who are seeing the highest levels of unemployment and the greatest health impacts from the pandemic? Black families. Well, Lena, thank you. Yeah, no, and I think all of your listeners need need to recognize this, that there were already disparities, as we all know. The education one gets spoken about a lot, but health disparities are social determinants of health. 
Um, two babies born in a hospital laying side by side. One is white as one is black. You can predict with accuracy which one's going to live longer, um, just simply based on what's going to happen in society. What COVID did was expose those even more. Um, we have a much higher percentage of, of folks who are infected as a part of the population um, from the black community in particular. And and those businesses, as Jude was just speaking about this, um, hit disproportionately to that. So we have made the effort to make sure that the state is targeting those businesses. Um, I asked yesterday for the federal government to continue their uh, FMAP, which is federal Medicaid assistance. Um, and what they've done is, is we usually get, I believe, 6.9% or right in that number, um, upping that to 14% in reimbursement, which allows us to make sure people stay on health care, making sure that they're able to, uh, to, to have that for their family. But the other thing that we needed to do, and this is where the community has helped, and I want to um, thank people like uh, Reverend Babington Johnson out there and others who have, uh, Al McAfee and others, these folks have stepped up leaders and and black church leaders in particular, and and challenged us to, to get testing out to these communities, get services out into these communities, and do it in a way that the community trusts their leadership and, and have the state be there to support, but have it being implemented by those leaders. And, and they're asking us to relook at how we do education in those terms. It's not good enough for us to say, well, we're going to address this, this achievement gap, but we're in the middle of COVID. Um, they are rightfully asking us to do both at the same time. Uh, we are starting to run a little short on time. I have a couple of uh, landlords on the line asking, uh, the, saying they have some combative tenants who are taking advantage of the anti-eviction rules. When will they be allowed to exercise their rights as owners and landlords? Yeah, and I this is one, and I just want to be clear to our landlords. The, the vast majority of them have gone above and beyond um, what should be asked of them to keep people safe. They've pushed rents back down. Um, they've extended payments. And, and we put on an eviction moratorium to make sure that people couldn't be removed. We also adjusted that to give some authority in those executive orders for people to be able to remove um, folks who are taking advantage of it or are simply uh, destroying property and putting other people at risk. So what I would say to, to those two listeners or to any of the landlords that are out there, our Department of Labor and Industry, our, our folks uh, are here, or even, even the governor's office on, on complaints on this, um, because I want to be clear, this is not about demonization of landlords. Um, and, and certainly when they tell me this is happening, um, I believe them. I also know that the vast majority of people struggling to pay rent and stay in their apartments and were worried about evictions, um, we're doing what we asked them to do, stay home, stop the spread of COVID, and it put them in that position. Federal government helped. President Trump instituted an eviction moratorium. We've added $100 million to help pay for those rents. But I would encourage those landlords, if you feel like you have a situation, the executive order allows for that to happen. This is not blanket and says you can do whatever you want, destroy an apartment, put people at risk. It's, that is not what it was written for. And, and the law is on your side to do this right. And for renters who are out there who are doing everything right and are worried, that's why we have the eviction moratorium. And I just want to be clear, if today in the legislature they take away these powers, the eviction moratorium ends today and you can be evicted immediately. That's the way that works. Governor Tim Walls, thank you so much for being with us today. I appreciate your taking all the time to uh, answer these questions. No, thank you, Mike. I'm sorry about the little technical glitch in the beginning, but I can't wait till we can do it in person and that won't happen. 
we'll be happy to have you back anytime. Thank you so much. That is Governor Tim Walz. Thank you for calling as well. This is Politics Friday on NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy.